Well, that song has served us well as a theme song for our study of the book of Lamentations, and we thought we'd sing it one more time because today we are going to be wrapping up our little series on this interesting, obscure Old Testament book. Before you turn there, I want to invite you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 29, Jeremiah chapter 29, it's graduation season and one of the most popular verses that we often hear referenced in graduation speeches and see printed in graduation cards is Jeremiah 29 verse 11. However, it is typically ripped out of its historical context and Nothing is ever mentioned about who it originally applied to. So I want to look at this verse with you in its context as we begin this morning. Jeremiah 29, verse 10. This was God's word to the the exiles of Judah who were in Babylon. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. And here's our verse, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will, fa- I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. You need to know that Jeremiah spoke these promises to the very same people to whom he was lamenting with in Lamentations, just 10 short years later. The Babylonian captivity of Judah unfolded in three stages that included three separate deportations. The first one was in 605 BC when Daniel and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were taken to Babylon. And then there was another deportation in 597, and the last one was in 586 BC. After the second deportation in 597, uh, Jeremiah provided the Jewish exiles this promise to give them hope that their captivity in Babylon would be temporary and that God would deliver them and restore them to their land in response to their earnest and repentant prayers. In other words, this was not the end of the story for God's people. God was and is bound by his character to fulfill the covenant he made to the nation of Israel and no matter how unfaithful they are and, uh, or were and are to him, he will always be faithful to them. From the very beginning, he promised to make Israel a great nation who would bless all the other nations of the world through a descendant of David who would be enthroned in Jerusalem and reign over the entire earth forever and ever. But when Jeremiah penned these five laments, all of that seemed lost. The temple, 
God's earthly dwelling place was in ruins. The city of Jerusalem had been turned to rubble. The king from David's line had been killed and the Jews were in captivity. Things appeared hopeless and beyond recovery. God's people were in utter despair and Israel's future looked dismal. And it was much like what we all experience at times when things feel out of control God feels distant, and it feels like sin has won the day. But Jeremiah concluded his lament with a call to prayer, which was the very thing God expected of his exiled people who were now reaping the consequences of their sinful rebellion against him. And Lamentations 5 is was really a reminder to the Jews of what God had promised them in Jeremiah 29, that the path to their restoration would require humble and contrite prayer, which we know is a theme in the Old Testament. In David's uh, repentant prayer of Psalm 51, he said, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 66 too says, but to this one I will look to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. And so Lamentations 5 is just that. It's the humble, contrite prayer of a repentant sinner pleading with God to restore them to a right relationship with him. Now you may may remember that um, the first three chapters of the book end with a prayer. But there's no prayer at the end of chapter four, and so chapter five essentially functions as the concluding prayer of chapter four, but also the concluding prayer of the entire book. Walt Kaiser, who has become a a dear friend through his commentary, Grief and Pain in the Plan of God, he said it this way, quote, it is the final touch, talking about Lamentations 5, it is the final touch that gives unity and completes the book for when all is said and done, we rest our case for relief and healing from suffering when we commit it to God in prayer. And so what we have before us is a prayer of desperation by Jeremiah on behalf of his fellow Jews who had survived the Babylonian invasion and we were either left there in the land or had been taken into exile. And so here he was, humiliated and heartbroken, and yet he turned his tear-stained face towards heaven and he cried out to God to deliver them from their painful and shameful situation that they were in as a result of their sin and to ask God to forgive them and to restore them. And I think Jeremiah's prayer shows us the godly response whenever we are suffering or lamenting or grieving the direct effects of our own sin or the indirect effects of someone else's sin or the general effects of simply living in a fallen, broken, sin-cursed world. So chapter 5 is unique in that it's in its entirety a prayer. Um, It's also unique in that it doesn't follow the poetic pattern of the other chapters. There are 22 verses like the others. Chapter 3 had 66, you remember. And again, this was so that the 
the, uh, the writer, Jeremiah, could uh, match up each of the verses with the letters of the Hebrew alphabet in an, in an, an acrostic format, well, um, while there are 22 verses here, uh, it's not an acrostic. Also, uh, Jeremiah uh, replaced the limping meter that he was using up to this point, which was, a, again, a poetic um, device to kind of make this sound like a funeral dirge, like we're kind of just trudging our way to a cemetery to put someone in the grave. And it, again, it's the, it's, the, it's the nation of Israel. It's, it's, it's the nation of Judah. It's, 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 it's Jerusalem. It's the death of a city. It's the death of a nation. So he was using this limping meter. And, and, but now he replaces it with a, a smoother, smoother, more staccato-like um, summary of all, uh, of all of what he's already talked about, which, which again, indicates, I think, that the, the, the lament is winding down to almost a whimper, like when a person is done crying or, or, or they can't cry anymore. You ever been there? Or maybe you've held your child when after you've had to discipline them, they've cried and, and they just finally get to the place where they're just kind of whimpering at the end, right? And that, that's kind of what we see here in Lamentations chapter 5. And so after all the darkness and all the gloom and all the grief and tears, this book ends on a more positive and encouraging note. And as I mentioned in the opening message, it's very ironic that hope would shine forth so clearly and brightly from what appears on the surface to be such a dark, depressing book. And yet this is one of the many paradoxes revealed in God's word. In fact, this prayer in Lamentations 5, in fact, the entire book, uh, reminds me of the introductory prayer in the Valley of Vision. I know some of you use that for your personal devotions. It's a collection of Puritan prayers. And there is a prayer that's not even in, in the list of prayers that they give. It's kind of the, the preface or the introduction. Um, and it's where they got the title, The Valley of Vision. Let, let me read it for you. And see if you don't see like I do how it fits perfectly with the whole theme of Lamentations. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the valley of vision, where I live in the depths, but I see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, the, the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. And then he says this, the prayer concludes, Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from the deepest wells, and the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. Jeremiah was in a valley. In fact, worse, he was in a deep well. And yet, his experience is much like this Puritan prayer where he expresses the paradox of joy amid sorrow and peace amid pain and mercy amid misery and hope amid heartache. 
Hopefully you'll never forget that Lamentations chapter 3 is the climax, is the peak of the book with all of its references to God's loving kindness, God's mercy, God's faithfulness, God's sufficiency. But here in chapter 5, we are shown how we as sinners can appropriate God's love and God's mercy and God's faithfulness and God's sufficiency by confessing our sin and repenting of our sin and turning to the Lord for restoration and, you ready for this, reorientation. Restoration is, I think, easily seen in this chapter in light of uh, verse 21, restore us to you, O Lord, that we may be restored. The reorientation is not so clear on the surface, but I think the key to being spiritually reoriented, if you will, is found in verse 19. I read it to you earlier at the beginning of the service. You, O Lord, rule forever. Your throne is from generation to generation. So now we see Jeremiah introducing or maybe reminding us, because he actually did introduce this in Lamentations chapter 3, but we see him pinning his hope on another one of God's foundational attributes. Not only do we need to focus on God's love and God's mercy and God's faithfulness and God's sufficiency, we also need to keep our eyes fixed on God's sovereignty. And that's what verse 19 is all about. It's about God's sovereignty. If you want a simple definition of sovereignty, it just, just break the word down. God is sovereign. He reigns over all things. God ordains and orchestrates everything. And so whenever the bottom drops out or our lives are turned upside down as a result of sin, whether it's cancer or an unwanted divorce or our own foolish choices, and all seems to be lost, we must remember and rest in the fact that God is still on his throne, that he's still in charge, that he remains firmly in control. Again, Kaiser summarizes it well. He says, God's eternal rule and reign is all our hope and stay during the bleak moments of suffering and despair. The book ends on the grand note that our God reigns. And so whenever we find ourselves disoriented by sin and its sad, painful effects, and by the way, sin is very disorienting, isn't it? And the effects of sin is very disorienting. It presses our minds out of shape, as Packer said in his book, Knowing God. But lament, lament helps to reorient reorient us in that when we grieve over our sins, our heads are lifted and our tear-filled eyes are turned towards God's throne of grace, which is our only hope especially when the dark clouds still linger over our heads and we may even continue to feel like God has forgotten us or forsaken us. Mark Brogop, in his book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, we've been referencing that quite often, said this, 
Books like Lamentations help us trust the God who wrote the rest of the story beyond chapter 5. He reigns when the future is unclear. Prayerfully celebrate the reign of God even when you have no idea how the plan will unfold. He said the presence of pain does not negate the plan of God. My prayer this morning has been that whoever comes here today in a chapter of their life that is sad, that is hard, that is painful, that you would be able to leave here with a hope that that's not the end of your story. That's just a chapter. But there's more to come. I found it insightful that Rogop references Acts 2.23, Peter's words to the crowds, uh, Jewish crowds on the day of Pentecost. He said, this man, Jesus, was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. His point is this, God ordained, reigned over Jesus' crucifixion. The cruel death of the Son of God at the hands of wicked men was all part of God's plan. And then he makes the implication here. If God can take the most unjust moment in history and turn it into redemption, then surely we can say, you reign. Even when we can't imagine how God might use hard circumstances in our lives we can still believe he's in control. Now that was all for free. But I needed to say all that because as we walk through this final chapter, we need to realize that Jeremiah wasn't just rehashing uh, the horrible consequences of the sin that the people of Judah were experiencing. It will sound a lot like that, but he's actually reorienting himself and them with the reminder that God reigns. And so let's consider this twofold prayer of a sinner who longs to be restored to a right relationship with God. Or perhaps put it in a more practical way, if you find yourself today in a mess of your own making, Your prayer should be, remember me and restore me. Now that needs to be your prayer. Remember me and restore me. Well, let's look at these two parts of this prayer. Uh, Verses 1 through 18, we could call remember us. Remember us. Look at verse 1. Jeremiah says, Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our reproach. This is not just a call to remember, a call to mind. Uh, This is a call to act. This is a prayer for God to intervene on their behalf in light of all the awful things that had befallen them as a result of their sinful rebellion. And he goes on in in verse 2 through 18 to uh, once again give a detailed description of the wretched conditions uh, experienced by those who survived the Babylonian invasion so that God, in a sense, would be moved by their desperate situation and motivated to have mercy on them. And so there's really nothing new here. It's simply uh, Jeremiah amplifying what he's already said. 
But let's read this together. Verse 2, our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our houses to aliens. We have become orphans without a father. Our mothers are like widows. We have to pay for our drinking water. Our wood comes to us at a price. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are worn out. There is no rest for us. We have submitted to Egypt and Assyria to get enough bread. Our fathers sinned and are no more. It is we who have borne their iniquities, slaves over us. There is no one to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the risk of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin has become as hot as an oven because of the burning heat of famine. They ravaged the women in Zion, the virgins in the cities of Judah. Princes were hung by their hands. Elders were not respected. Young men worked at the grinding mill and youth stumbled under loads of wood. Elders are gone from the gate, young men from their music. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned into mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. Because of this, our heart is faint. Because of these things, our eyes are dim. Because of Mount Zion, which lies desolate, foxes prowl in it. So they were deprived of their inheritance They had lost everything. They were orphaned. They were widowed. They they were forced to pay for the bare essentials of life. They were oppressed and enslaved by their enemies. They were suffering uh, the consequences of their ancestors' sinful alliances with foreign countries. Their body was inflamed by the hunger and thirst that they felt. Uh, Their women were raped and ravaged. Their, Their leaders were brutally massacred. Their young men were forced to do the work of animals Uh, Their temple and entire city lay desolate and overrun by jackals. Uh, They were completely depressed. Their king uh, had been captured and taken into exile. Not just Zedekiah, but the entire Davidic line had ceased and all hope for the expected Messiah had perished. But did you notice Jeremiah not only described what happened, but why it happened? Did you notice verse 16? The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have what? Sinned. They finally own up. They finally admit it. They finally stop making excuses. They're they're no longer shifting blame to other things or other ones, other people. They simply just say it, yeah, we, we, we sinned. It's almost as if they're saying, if only we hadn't sinned. I don't know who said this. I came across this um, a while ago. You may have heard this before. It goes like this. Sin will take you further than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you more than you want to pay. Let me say that again. Sin will take you further than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay and it will cost you more than you want to pay. And so the people of Judah realized that they deserved everything that happened to them. That they had brought all of this on themselves and they were being punished for persisting in their sinful lifestyle. And they found out the hard way that sin never satisfies it, never delivers on its promises. Instead of making you happy, it makes you sad. Rather than making you feel good, it makes you feel guilty. It it steals your joy and literally sucks the life out of you. 
That's why David in Psalm 51, when he was confessing his sin of adultery and his sin of murder, said, prayed, cried out to God, Lord, restore the, what? Joy of my salvation. In the sister Psalm, Psalm 32, David described what his life was like when he was hiding his sin. He says, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with a fever heat of summer. So just like David and his penitent prayers, here the Jews were expressing a humble and contrite heart. They, they stopped rationalizing their sin and they took full responsibility for their disobedience. And when we do that, that's when things begin to change. And the light of hope, light of God's hope begins to break through the darkness of our sin. Notice verse 15, the joy of our hearts has ceased, our dancing has been turned into mourning. Makes me think of the exact opposite experience that the psalmist describes in Psalm 30. Psalm 30, verse 4. Sing praise to the Lord, you his godly ones, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. And then in verse 10 of Psalm 30, hear, O Lord, and be gracious to me, O Lord, my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness that my soul may sing praise to you and not be silent. So, the first part of this prayer that Jeremiah prayed on behalf of the people of Judah was, God, remember us. Remember us. The second part is, God, restore us. God, restore us. And again, we already read verse 19, but let's read it again. You, O Lord, rule forever. Your throne is from generation to generation. If you want to highlight a verse, bracket a verse, underline a verse to remember its significance here in the storyline of Lamentations, that would be the verse. Second only, or maybe right alongside Lamentations chapter 3, right, verses 22 through 23, the Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. This would be right along with that. You, O Lord, rule forever. Your throne is from generation to generation. In fact, I originally thought of titling this sermon, God Rules the Wasteland, right? This is the, the wasteland we've been looking at for the last month or two. And that's what it looks like when we sin, right? And we got to deal with the wasteland that, that our sin brings into our lives. But there's hope in the midst of that. What is that hope? That God reigns. That God is sovereign. And while God's earthly home in the temple where he sat enthroned among the cherubim had been destroyed, his heavenly home remained permanent and eternal. And even though everything 
at the time seemed to be spinning out of control, God was still sitting on his throne in heaven. Psalm 103, 19, I love this. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. And I couldn't help but see a connection here with verse 16 where it says, the crown has fallen from our head. Their crown may have fallen from their head, but God's crown was still firmly fixed on his head. One commentator said this, the dominance of Babylon never posed a threat to God's sovereign rule. If anything, the destruction of Jerusalem and the deportation of her citizens demonstrated that God still ruled the nations, that he was continuing to work out his purpose in human history. In spite of the sufferings of his people, God was still in control. In fact, God sovereignly ordained the nation of Babylon, to be his rod of discipline for his own people. The point is God controls everything. And you ready for this? That includes our sin and all of its evil effects. Now, I didn't say that God is responsible for our sin or for all of his evil effects. I'm just saying he reigns over all those things. He is sovereign over those things. He rules over those things. And if you feel like that's shaky ground or thin ice, I was very grateful and edified by someone in our church who recently um, gave me a link to a sermon by Martin Lloyd-Jones called God in Control, and it was an exposition of Romans 8.28, for God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And he was making the point in this sermon that, God, that, that, that if we believe that God causes all things or works all things together for good, that all things has to include sin. And I think they sent me that message because it was a, a more fuel for that whole limping living with a limp, right, that there's benefits to remaining sin, that God is sovereign even over that, not that we should go on sinning so that grace may abound. No, may it never be, right? But instead of uh, just knowing that God is sovereign even over our sin is so encouraging, so comforting. Notice the next verse, verse 20. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us so long? Restore us to you, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. Again, I love how raw and honest and transparent Jeremiah is here. He felt forgotten by God. He felt forsaken by God. And yet he was still confident that God would restore his people if they repented and returned to him. The same God who brought about their destruction would be the same God who brought about their restoration. And he was simply asking God to fulfill the remainder of his covenant. He had been faithful to the first part already. If you disobey me, I will what? Curse you. And now he was simply appealing to God to be faithful to the second part. If you obey me, I will bless you. So Jeremiah had every reason to have hope for restoration. 
because God had been faithful to discipline them for turning away from him, and he would also be faithful to restore them if they turned back to him. And notice how he says this in verse 21, restore us to you. Jeremiah was asking God to turn their hearts back to him. Again, a great reminder that restoration, redemption, salvation ultimately depends on God. It requires divine initiative. Repentance is a gift granted to us by God. 2 Timothy chapter 2.25, if perhaps God may grant them repentance. We can't manufacture repentance. We can't work it up in ourselves. It's a, it's a gracious act of God. So does that mean we can just sit around and wait for God to, to grant us repentance? Like we have no responsibility in any of this? No. We need to mourn over our sin and have true godly sorrow for our sin and God will grant us repentance. James said it well in James 4, verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so when we humble ourselves before God and confess our sin and turn back to him, we will find him waiting for us and even running to us like the father of the prodigal son who was overjoyed at his wayward son desire for reconciliation. That's how you know you're truly repentant or or a person is truly repentant is they they want more than just the removal of pain. They want the renewal of peace with God. It's not like, man, I just, I'm sick of this. I just wish the consequences go away. I hate these consequences. Uh, You might not be experiencing true godly sorrow. True godly sorrow longs for renewal of peace with God, to be in a right relationship with God. That's what matters most, even if you have to still continue to live with the consequences. So the discipline of the Lord had accomplished its intended result. The prodigal nation had come to its senses and was returning to the Father. God had sent them into exile in Babylon to be, to be punished and purified and restored to, to closeness and usefulness to him. And here they were through Jeremiah the prophet casting themselves on God's grace and mercy and begging him to forgive them and to restore them. Now I wish I could just end here and, and close in prayer. But if you notice, there's one more verse. Verse 22. Unless you have utterly rejected us and are exceedingly angry with us. 
What an odd way to end this book. But I guess it should come as no surprise because this is an odd little book to begin with. So why not another odd feature here? But this is like a like the ending, like a bad ending to a movie. Are you ever sitting there in the movie theater and you're, you're kind of watching the movie and it's going good and all of a sudden it just like ends. You're like, what? That was terrible. I mean, it just like stopped and it left you hanging and there was all these questions that you had and so that's kind of how we're left here. Jeremiah leaves us kind of hanging with this question. Well, you know, kind of just spoke out into the into, into space unless you've utterly rejected us and are exceedingly angry with us and there's like no response. In fact, this is such an alarming thought to many, or, or alarming thought to many Jews when they read this. They, they refuse to finish reading Lamentations with this final verse. And, and so it's become customary in a lot of synagogues whenever they read through the book of Lamentations on their annual read-through, they'll repeat, they'll read verse 22, and then they'll repeat verse 21. Because that sounds better. That's what we want to focus on. That brings resolution. But I think that's the whole point of this. That this chapter is left open. Because like the nation of Judah, sometimes we feel like God has rejected us. He's abandoned us because of our sin and it causes us to wonder, maybe perhaps he'll leave us in this state that we're in and we we might find ourselves asking some of the same questions here. Will, Will God deliver me? Will he forgive me? Will he bring an end to my suffering? Will I ever be able to be happy again? Will I ever have hope again? Am I beyond redemption Well, the obvious answer is what? Never. You are never beyond redemption. In fact, after spending 70 years in exile, God did restore his people to their land. Zerubbabel and Ezra, if you remember, came back and rebuilt the temple. And then a few years later, Nehemiah came and rebuilt the walls, all in preparation for the coming of who? Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Jeremiah ended here by not giving us the rest of the story. And again, I think that's the point that the Spirit of God had here. That this is just one chapter in the story. We know the rest of the story, don't we? We we know how it ends. And it seems fitting for me to end this series on these five funeral dirges that we know as lamentations, the same way, same way I conclude every funeral I've ever officiated. If you've been doing a funeral that I've done, you know how I end every funeral. What, what, what do I do? I share the gospel. Because that's where lament should naturally lead us. Lamentations is a stark reminder that we live in a fallen, broken, sin-cursed world 
And that's why there's so much suffering. That's why there's so much pain. That's why there's so much pain and, and, and heartache. Everything is affected by sin. Everyone is infected with sin. Sin is in the world and sin is in us. And the consequences of sin is death. Sin is why all of us are going to die someday. God hates sin and he must punish it with death. But rather than punishing us, God had mercy on us. We were just singing about that. How we rejoice in the mercy of God in that he chose to punish his son, Jesus Christ, instead of us. And Jesus endured the miseries of sin by coming to earth and dying on a cross in our place so that we could experience the mercies of God by turning from sin and trusting in Christ's death as the only way our relationship with God can ever be restored. Someone said it this way, this study of sin and its consequences and the corresponding grief it brings into our lives must drive us to the cross of Christ. There is no hope anywhere else. And I would add this, that the book of Lamentations not only points us to Christ's first coming, when he died and rose again from the dead, but it ultimately points us to Christ's second coming, when sin's curse will forever be done away with, along with all of its consequences, namely sorrow, pain, and death, because when Christ returns, he will recreate the universe He'll make a new heaven and a new earth, including a new Jerusalem, and he'll reign over these, and there will be no lament. Why? Because there will be no sin. I love John's description of heaven in Revelation chapter 21. Verse one, that I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them and here it is, and he will wipe away every what? Tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. God has promised that one day sin will be no more and when there is no sin, there is no more reason to cry. There's no more reason for tears. So, in the meantime, we can live amid the heartache of sin hoping for that day when sin's curse will be lifted and paradise will be restored and our earthly groanings will be replaced with heavenly praises. I came across a little book a few years back by Gardner Spring. He was a, an American pastor in New York back in the 17, 1800s. He wrote a book called The Mission of Sorrow, and the final chapter is titled No Sorrow There, 
And he writes about how God uses sorrow here on earth to fit us for heaven. And when we finally get there, we're going to look back and marvel at why he sovereignly ordained every trial in our lives and how he lovingly sustained us through every pain and sorrow. Let me just conclude by reading what he said. Oh, what adoring, what humble thankfulness we will then take the place of the restless and depressed and murmuring spirit with which they so unsubmissively endured their trials in the present world. When those ransomed spirits, weary of the conflicts of earth, repose under the tree of life and there at the feet of the enthroned lamb reflect upon the way that they have been led through the wilderness and look down upon the agonies of that eternal pit from which they have been rescued, how can it be otherwise that that a deep and everlasting sense of their unworthiness and ill desert should add to the fullness of their gratitude and joy? Oh, that I could direct the eyes of the mourner upward and in these hours of darkness bid his heart rest on that blessed world where in a few short hours all who fear God and love his son will meet in holier and more intimate fellowship, not to recount their own sorrows, but to tell of him who came to the humiliation of the manger and the agonies of the cross to rescue them from endless weeping and infinite despair. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you that wherever we're at today, no matter how hard, no matter how painful, no matter how grievous it is, it's not the end of our story. And we know how the story ends. Lord, for those of us who find ourselves in a mess of our own making, may the prayer of our hearts be to you, remember me, restore me. And God, may we never forget during our sojourn here in this ruined city called planet Earth that we are citizens of a greater and more enduring city, the new Jerusalem. And may the sin that we have to deal with in the meantime in this fallen, broken world, the sin in our own lives, the sin in other people's lives, just make us yearn more for our eternal home. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.